Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Progressive Era, Part 1. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Second Era of Reform. From 1898 to 1917, the Progressive Era occurred, which was an era of social and economic reforms. And reform movements were nothing new in America, as we saw from what Jacob Rice, Jane Addams, the populists, and labor unions did in the Gilded Age. Reform even stretched back to the 1840s, where Americans had organized themselves in order to improve society for the most vulnerable. While the early 20th century did bring better times, many wanted to avoid a repeat of the turbulent 1890s. The major difference between this movement and the Gilded Age was that this was an era of reform achieved. However, progressives were not one clearly defined or organized group. They were more like a constellation of reformers with varying and sometimes mutually exclusive goals. But progressives were united in their desire to expand the power of government on behalf of the public good. However, many progressives define the public good in different ways. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Who Drives Reform? Now, of course, depending on your background, you would have a different, perhaps incompatible view of what actually was the public good. Many of these ideas merely continue what other reformers advocated in the Gilded Age and during the first era of antebellum reform. Now, for labor, your primary concern is working conditions. The eight-hour workday, limiting the problems of child labor, and wages and contracts. Now, the middle class sees other issues. They worry about political and economic corruption that creates inefficiency. They want to tackle social ills with local charitable organizations and local municipal and state laws, mostly aimed at protecting women and children. Lastly, they want to control economic instability caused by monopolies, labor strikes, and corruption. The populists also left a legacy as well. The agrarian reformers will continue to push for banking and railroad regulations aimed at helping farmers. Journalists also drive reform. Many want to highlight how unfair business practices and lack of regulation hurts the commoner. Businessmen can also drive reform, as they wanted to increase inefficiency and thus maximize profits. But the common attribute between all of these different classes is that women are at the heart of the reform movement, and many reforms would not have been possible without their consistent sacrifices. So now that we know who drives reform, let us look at some big-picture concepts regarding social politics and their effect. So please turn to the next slide, New Social Politics. As a result of the Progressive Era, we will see the creation of several new policies that will influence American government, politics, and the economy. First, we see the creation of state labor and welfare laws that protect the most vulnerable citizens. Second, we will see the enhancement of the federal government's ability to tax businesses and citizens and to regulate economic activity for the benefit of the people. Third, we will see how reformers will weaken the power of parties as they form organizations around single issues 
that allow them to unite and lobby their respective governments to tackle their pet projects. An example of this is like the Sierra Club, the NRA, and various temperance societies. So while some citizens will see their political power increase through the usage of single-issue political organizations, others will also be empowered through electoral reform, as citizens will push through new concepts like referendums, recalls, and ballot initiatives, which takes power away from the parties and puts it in the hands of the people. However, as we will see, electoral reform will also disfranchise blacks, the poor, and many immigrants. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Labor and Social Welfare. As we discussed in a previous lecture, working and living conditions in the urban centers were often very hard. That is why reformers like Jane Addams created settlement houses like Hull House to educate and improve people's living conditions. But laws regulating working conditions were still greatly wanting, as evidenced by a tragedy in New York City. In 1914, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire occurred. Workers, mostly young immigrant women, had worked on the top three floors. And the doors had been locked to prevent employee theft, but also to regulate when and where women could go to the bathroom. Because of the terrible working conditions there, a fire broke out, and with the doors locked, 146 women died, many burning to death or jumping from the windows to avoid such a grisly fate. Obviously, workers and immigrants were horrified, as these were their wives, their sisters and daughters, who had been horribly killed. Despite the fact that Tammany Hall had been accused of being corrupt, the push of these many people pressed the state to address workplace issues, and many safety standards and regulations were put in place in order to avoid other horrific accidents. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Middle Class Morality. Many middle class reformers believed the best way to improve society was to make immigrants and the poor more like themselves. And while this is a little pompous, they did have their hearts in the right place. The first moral reform effort centered around the temperance or prohibition movement. And this was nothing new, as it had been going on since the 1830s. Alcoholism in America was rampant, as the average white adult free male drank the equivalent of 75 fifths of alcohol per year. So that's basically drinking 75 bottles of Jack Daniels a year, and that is a lot of alcohol. This movement was led mostly by women, as they wanted to protect women and children from spousal and child abuse, as well as poverty. The main organization was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which claimed more than a million members in the 1880s, which was the largest women's group in the United States history up to that time. The WCTU was also involved in the fight for women's suffrage and the eight-hour workday. They were complemented by the Anti-Saloon League, which was founded in 1893 and had a larger male presence inside it. Both organizations avoided national politics and instead focused on municipal and state laws that could affect real change at the local level. And this is evident because from 1904 to 1911, 
11 states and hundreds of localities passed anti-alcohol laws. After these successes, a national movement was started, which resulted in the 18th Amendment in 1919. Again, people can make a difference when they stand up for what they believe in. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Economic Reform. While the People's Party had fizzled out, many former populists rejoined the major political parties, and after 1900, William Jennings Bryan downplayed free silver and instead focused on labor laws, banking reform, and more modest programs to help farmers. A major proponent of economic reform was the Socialist Party of America, which reached its height in the early 20th century. This was a varied group that included New York sweatshop workers, Milwaukee German trade workers, dentists, and landless farmers. And as you can see from the map, by 1912, there were 1,200 socialist politicians in office in over 340 American municipalities, further illustrating that socialism has a long and storied history in American governance and is not the boogeyman that many politicians make it out to be. Eugene V. Debs, head of the Socialist Party of America, once said about competition, quote, Competition was natural enough at one time, but do you think you are competing today? Many of you think you are competing, but against whom? Against Rockefeller? About as I would if I had a wheelbarrow and competed with the Santa Fe Railroad from here to Kansas City, end quote. So he's basically making the argument that you can't take on business or the government by yourselves. You need help. Please advance to the next slide entitled journalism. As I described in a previous lecture, muckraking journalists attempted to draw attention to economic inequality. If you recall, we described Jacob Rice in his book, How the Other Half Lives. Another person, Lewis Hine, also took photos for the National Child Labor Committee, and as a result of his efforts, by 1900, 30 states had limited child labor in some meaningful way. Another major journalist was Upton Sinclair, and he wrote the book The Jungle in 1906. This book was about immigrants who worked in Chicago's cattle stockyards, and Sinclair wanted to expose the poverty and terrible working conditions, and it was also a critique of capitalism. Much of the book described the nastiness and corruption of the meatpacking industry. In one passage said, quote, there would be meat that had tumbled out on the floor, in the dirt and in the sawdust, where the workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. There would be meat stored in great piles in rooms, and thousands of rats would race about it. A man could run his hands over these piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die, and then the rats, the bread, and the meat would go into the hoppers altogether. End quote. That's pretty disgusting. Well, as a result of this book, Roosevelt was so upset that he had it investigated. And when his investigation uncovered this type of abuse, he crafted legislation to correct the issue. That, ladies and gentlemen, is leadership.
and another example of how one person can change the world. Please advance to the next slide entitled Efficiency in Business. Progressives weren't just more reformers, women, or labor groups. Businessmen also wanted to reform in order to make business more efficient and thus maximize profits. One example is Frederick W. Taylor, who wrote the book The Principles of Scientific Management in 1911. He was an industrial engineer who analyzed every action in manufacturing, and he sought to standardize production and eliminate any wasted motion by workers. And his goal was to lower costs and to make work less dependent on the know-how of workers so that you could replace them with unskilled workers, which were easier to hire and fire. Now previously, an owner had also been an operator. He had apprentices or skilled laborers and then maybe a few unskilled people in his job. And also, the owner might have to double as a bookkeeper. But now, owners were far removed from their businesses, and you had to train legions of middle managers and accountants in order to make effective business strategies and make business more accountable. Henry Ford is another example of business reformers. He was the owner of the Ford Motor Company, and one of the first to use the assembly line in a massive scale. However, he was also a rabid anti-Semite. In 1908, Ford introduced the Model T, which he called, quote, the motor car for the great multitude, end quote. It was tougher than most other cars, which was important for handling rough country roads. And he said buyers could have any color they wanted, as long as it was black. Each worker on the assembly line had one simple job to do, and this really sped up production. Before the use of the assembly line, a Model T took about 12 hours to build, but by 1914, the time was cut to just 93 minutes. By 1916, over 730,000 Model Ts had been produced each year and sold for $360 each. Ford understood that if you have industrial-scale production, you need industrial-scale demand. So Ford paid his workers higher wages because he knew they would buy his products as well. He also wanted to reform his workers, and he preferred to hire married men. He discouraged drunkenness and encouraged church attendance. Of course, this was not out of the goodness of his heart. He knew that sober family men were more reliable workers than single drunken hooligans. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Government Reform. Many politicians wanted to cure the corruption of the political parties that often aided businesses in their efforts to influence politics and prevent social reform. Two examples, Wisconsin Senator and later Governor Robert Fighting Bob LaFollette and Hiram Johnson of California illustrate this trend. They pressed for the income tax, inheritance taxes on the wealthy, and an industrial commission to investigate corporate activity. They also sponsored efforts to end patronage in the era of political bosses. They called for the adoption of the recall, a special election that could remove an elected official from office. You also see the advent of referendums and initiatives in this era 
which are where voters by petition can challenge state laws or put forward their own ballot initiatives for the popular vote. And you probably see many individuals around campus trying to do this, most famously, marijuana legalization. One of the largest government reforms was the passage of the 17th Amendment in 1913, which called for the direct election of U.S. Senators by the people. Up to this time, U.S. Senators had been chosen by state legislatures, as the states believed they should have a say in the national government. However, direct election of U.S. Senators had been an old populist demand, and in some ways this is good because now people have a direct say in a senator's election. However, this is also bad because now they are subject to the same passions of partisan politics that we see today. The point is that many Americans will see their political power increased while the political parties see their power decreased. But of course, this is unequal, as immigrants, minorities, and the poor will be left out in the cold. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Women's Suffrage. College-educated, middle-class women were very involved in progressive movements, including getting their gender the right to vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony had founded the National Women's Suffrage Association, the NWSA, in the 1890s as a more radical institution to achieve the vote through a constitutional amendment as well as to push for other women's rights issues. Concurrently, Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, Julia Ward Howe, and other more conservative activists formed the American Women's Suffrage Association, the AWSA, to work for women's suffrage through amending individual state constitutions. Carrie Chapman Catt organized masterful campaigns in order to win over such states, Early 20th century women suffragists weren't claiming that women were equal to men. Instead, they said women were different, pure, and more virtuous, and thus needed the political power to better fulfill their duty to the family. However, reform in women's rights, much like today, had vehement opponents as well. The National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage, the NAOWS, was organized and led by Josephine Dodge. Its members included wealthy, influential women, some Catholic clergy, distillers, brewers, urban political machines, Southern congressmen, and corporate capitalists. Opposing votes for women may seem surprising today, but anti-suffrage views dominated among men and women through the early 20th century. Suffragists had national organizations since 1869 but anti-suffragists did not found their own group until 1911. Efforts to undermine the suffrage movement continued, with beatings and arrests of female protesters. In fact, Alice Paul, the leader of the National Women's Party, was put in solitary confinement in a mental ward of prison as a way to break her will and to undermine her credibility with the public. However, these opposition organizations were not successful. By 1910, women had full voting rights in four western states. By 1914, seven more states had joined, including Illinois, the first state east of the Mississippi River. And by 1920, the 19th Amendment 
was ratified to the United States Constitution, granting women the right to vote. And Woodrow Wilson had backed this as president, claiming it was a societal and military necessity in the midst of the First World War. The point is that this is another example of how it takes concerted effort in order to gain rights and hold on to them, and further illustrates that you can change the world if you are willing to organize and sacrifice for it. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Limits of Reform. Now, out of all of the efforts that I covered, in the end, many reforms were stifled by the very conservative Supreme Court, as these justices struck down state laws and they upheld business interests. At the time, they were primarily concerned with liberty of the contract, meaning no interference between employers and employees in negotiating a labor agreement. And which amendment justified this? Well, in their opinion, the 14th Amendment. And this was actually used more against labor unions than it was against businesses. While the Constitution does say that Congress can regulate interstate trade, the Supreme Court interpreted this very narrowly. And this interpretation would hold true until 1937, when older justices retired and FDR put new justices in their place. From 1939 to 1970s, the Supreme Court shifted their focus from the liberty of the contract to equality before the law. They said, if Congress can regulate interstate trade, then you need to make Congress more representative of the people, and you need the equal protection of all people before the law. Thus, we see a switch in the nature of the Supreme Court. Well, I'm going to cut the lecture off here and pick up in part two with Theodore Roosevelt and the rest of the progressive era. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.